Thank you, friends. It's good to be doing this today. Would you join me, please, in prayer that we may work with the scriptures to our profit? Once again, I use the collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through patient endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Son, your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yes, this is the third and last in my series on First Peter. And I have called it, as uh, you saw me um, affirming a moment ago, more soundings in First Peter. And... You may remember that um, I explained why I chose the word soundings to describe these studies. I s explained on an earlier occasion that um, I see us as in a position that's well illustrated by the ways in which um, people on the sea, in ships, take soundings to get clear on where they are, and so to be able to steer a wise course through the waters that uh, they are voyaging through at this very moment. And that's what I hope we shall gain from digging into First Peter for this third time, just as I hope we gain something um, in, from the first two studies. You'll remember that I gave the whole set of studies a title of my own, The Traveller's Guide. Um, I thought of that after thinking of soundings, but um, First Peter, as a letter, well, as a sermon in print, a sermon on paper, it really is a message about living one's life to the glory of God. And we are the travellers who need God's guidance to show us how to do that. And the three studies, I have said before, I think, um, can be neatly linked or um, put together. First study, um, look up. It was a study on the first chapter of the letter and the first half of the second chapter with it. And the grace of God, which enables us, sinners though we are, to look up with clear consciences because we're forgiven and with hope because we're the recipient of great promises. And uh, so, well, the, the simple phrase, looking up, seems to me to fit very well. And then for the second study, where we picked up in the second half of uh, <coughs> chapter 2 and went through to the end of chapter 3, I suggested that the phrase which fits all that we were doing then was the phrase, look around. And the title that I gave it when it was announced in advance was, or, or rather, when I, when I, yes, I should say, when I gave you the um, outline, which I did give you for the three studies together, is the was the title, Christians in the watching world, and um, the, the 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 passage that we were exploring was all about 
Christians living under the eyes of a watching world which is not always friendly, not always sympathetic, often suspicious and often unfair in its treatment of us. And Peter is speaking to that sort of situation, uh, both, uh, how can I say it, um, on the public stage and at home as between husband and wife, and shall I say all stations in between. Um, Peter is speaking about those relationships in terms of the same perspective. The world watches us, not always in a friendly manner, but watches us out of interest to see what we shall say and what we shall do. And we need to realize that and seek consciously, day by day, to live to the glory of our Saviour, behave in a way which brings honour to his name. And now we get to the third section of the letter, and the phrase that fits here, as it seems to me, is the phrase, look ahead. That's where Peter is going to leave us, looking ahead. And the reason why that phrase and that focus is really important to round off the letter is because the reality of life with which this final section of the letter is concerned is primarily the reality of suffering. Suffering in this world as we travel the road towards salvation in its fullness in a world beyond. And uh, that's, that's why, <coughs> excuse me, on the outline sheet, uh, I gave this third section a distinct title, Christians Suffering in the Storms. If any of you have brought that outline sheet with you, you'll see it there. Christians suffering in the storms. I thought that those were suitable terms in which to describe this aspect of the Christian life. And uh, I still think that. And, wish, uh, and I wish to begin this morning <coughs> by hammering away at that point and saying we have to get clear and realistic on this. Because, in fact, it is basic to the life that our Lord calls us to live. What do I mean when I talk about the storms? Well, there are all sorts of storms which we have to cope with in life. Some of them are physical storms external to us. If we had been living on the east coast of Canada or the States during this past winter, we should have experienced enough and to spare of physical storms. You know, they had terrific snowfalls and um, tremendous amount of damage done to dwellings and public services and um, uh, the uh, electrical wiring that keeps the country uh, keeps the country in electricity, and uh, it's only now that the damage has been repaired. And there were days when uh, folk living on the east coast were having to manage without the amenities because the storms had temporarily, at any rate, ruined them. Well, that's half the story, but only half the story because there are storms, storms that um, arise uh, in relation to our own personal lives, our inner lives. We call those storms sufferings. And suffering, as a matter of fact, 
is a word which uh, recurs, and I'm going to show you this before, before very long, it recurs over and over in Peter's letter. He is writing to people he knows who face a lot of suffering. And he doesn't avoid the theme, just the reverse. He picks it up and runs with it and keeps making positive points which are intended to fortify his readers against the weakening effect and the, the hope-destroying effect which uh, suffering tends, if we don't know how to deal with it, to produce. What am I talking about? Well, just think, pain. Many of us have to live with pain in one form or another. And sickness. Many of us have to live with sickness that goes on and on. We don't recover quickly and uh, we're weakened by the sickness. And we have to cope and it's demanding and difficult. Then there is the matter that we were dealing with in our second study, ill treatment from unsympathetic watchers who observe what we're doing and object to it. Christian consistency in community life often produces that result. Not everybody appreciates what we're doing. Some people resent it and they let us know that they resent it. All of us, I expect, have had some experience of that, and I can promise you we shall have more. And then any form of disappointment, there are many forms of disappointment, they too, I think, may properly be classed under the heading of suffering. I got used in teaching to offering this general definition of suffering. Suffering is <clears throat> any and every situation in which we get what we don't want and want what we don't get. You think about that. Well, in every, every time that either of those things happen, we feel a certain inner distress. Um, and, uh, well, inner distress is a form of suffering. And as I said, Peter knows all about this. <clears throat> and um, he's dealing with uh, the reality of it. Uh, right from the start of the letter, I'm, I'm going to just quote some of the key passages so that you'll realize this is a big deal with Peter. Peter is writing to people who are suffering, and he knows they're suffering, and he wants to make them realistic about it and strong in facing it. So, chapter 1, verse, which is it? Verse six, verses 6 and 7. Now for a little while, as was necessary, why was it necessary? Well, if we simply say it was the part of the purpose of God, we shall cover it. For a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By honouring God, then, in such experiences, we further his purpose of grace for our lives. He wants to show the world what he can do in sustaining us against the world's hostility. So, there's the theme, as early as verse 6 of chapter 1. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, 
you find him saying, it's, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin under beaten for it, you endure? You deserve what you get. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, so there's the thought again. This is part of our calling to honour God, please him, and bring him praise. And here, Peter goes straight on to do what he does a number of times, we shall see in a moment. Um, <clears throat> Christ is our example in this, he says. To this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Every time Peter refers to the work of Christ, it is precisely to Christ's suffering that he makes reference. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then we move into chapter 3 and the theme comes back in verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, as from time to time it is, he's already said that. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then as the letter goes on towards its end, the references to suffering become more frequent and insistent. Here we are, for instance, in chapter 4, the first of the two chapters that we're going to work through today. And here in verse 12, you've got Peter speaking directly to the trial of which he made reference in chapter 1. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so on. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. He continues, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God under that name. And so on. And when you get into chapter 5, well, similar things are happening. Here we are in verse 9, and we find Peter saying, Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering that you're experiencing are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And, listen to this, verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the end of the sermon. That's the note on which Peter finishes. The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Yes, and that's the perspective that I'll be filling in from, well, from now on to the end of the study. That's the big thing that Peter works up to and wants us to remember after we've finished studying what he says. Well... This I hope you find clear, and I hope you find strong. It's not something which we can ignore, but I hope you find it encouraging, because God is giving us great promises for coping with suffering, 
just as he's giving us the great example of the Lord Jesus who suffered for us and now reigns and will work with us to bring us through to where he is. So, that's the perspective and uh, the suffering in the storms is guaranteed to bring us glory, bring us glory. So really, we have no cause for complaint, but every reason to rejoice. Before he finishes, in, that is in verse eight of chapter five, um, he fills in the final bit of this perspective, which to him is a very important bit to fill in. We have, he wants us, as I said, to be realistic about this aspect of Christian life, the suffering aspect. And in order to be realistic about it, well, this dimension that he's just going to mention needs to be there on a regular basis. Listen as I read. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Just think of that. Prowls around like a roaring lion. This is not a lion in the zoo. This is precisely a lion that is not in the zoo. It's prowling around and roaring. Your adversary, the devil, is doing that, as he says, seeking someone to devour Resist him, etc., etc., etc. But the first and basic thing that you must do is remember that he's there and be realistic about his hostility and the cunning with which he pursues his hostility and the malice with which he pursues it with a firm, resolute purpose of bringing us down in flames in our discipleship. You see, when we become Christians, we walk into a war. The war between the Creator and the, the well, it's the angel, and then the army of angels who, following him, went astray. There is war in heaven. And... Just as God has a purpose of salvation, so Satan has a purpose of ruining disciples and destroying faith. Praise God, the devil is a defeated foe. And that's a great part of the meaning of the, meaning of the cross. And we must remember it. Never forget it. I'm going to stop a little bit uh, on this thought to make quite sure that we are realistic about it, that we do take seriously the fact that the devil is our adversary uh, because we are on the Lord's side, you see, and his war is against the Lord and so by extension against all the Lord's people. And... Uh, He's cunning, so we need to be sober-minded and watchful, uh, just as Peter says. Um, what does the devil do? Well, his basic technique is deception. He fools us, in other words, if he can. Fools us into doing something which we think is right, or at least harmless, when actually it's ruinous. That's one of the first things we learn in the Bible. It's there on the large scale for our study in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were fooled, and Adam and Eve fell, and so we are all of us in the condition in which we are needing to be saved from sin. 
that was a, what shall I call it, a score for Satan. But now, as, I said, as I've said already, he's a, he's a beaten foe. That's part of the meaning of Calvary. You remember the Lord Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world. That's uh, Satan, who in one or two places in the New Testament is spoken of as this world's ruler. At surface level, indeed, so he is. Um, but now is the prince of this world cast out. It's a rather vivid verb. It expresses a very decisive achievement. He is a defeated foe. He is no longer, even uh, at surface level, in appearance, uh, let alone in reality, he is no longer in charge. And that is something to hang on to. But his method, as I said, always was, and continues to be the method of deception, fooling people. He's very cunning at it. And uh, he uses <coughs> our fellow human beings. Uh, he could use the person <coughs> sitting next to us, you see, in this room, as his tool. Um, we with the best will in the world, lead each other astray. That can happen because Satan is orchestrating that sort of event over and over again. Well, this is inescapable, so we have to ask, what are we to do about it? What are we, what are we to do about it? Uh, later on, we'll be reminded of what it is that our Lord does about it for us. What are we to do about it? Well, let me offer you a number of words which together form an alliteration. My mind, as you know, I think, does alliterations without my asking it to, really. And this is what my mind came up with when I posed that question. Uh, Satan deploys doubt, unbelief of something or other that God has said. That was the trick in the Garden of Eden, and it remains his trick today amongst millions of people who call themselves Christians, and who call themselves liberal Christians, and who think themselves um, leading the pack as liberals, because they're confident that being a liberal from every standpoint, is a, or every theological standpoint anyway, is a very good thing. Well, I'm not going to talk at length about that. I am only going to say, Satan generates doubt of the word of God, and that's where his deception starts. Recognize then that Deception is the name of the game, and be on the watch for it. We, all of us, I suppose, have had the experience of being very sincerely committed to uh, points of view which afterwards we came to see were not wise, not godly, not points of view really to be commended from any standpoint at all. But uh, for a time anyway, we were persuaded of them and we uh, urged them in discussion and debate and so on. And we were on the wrong side. Satan was using us as his tool. It's something that we ought very much not to want to do or to, uh, not to want to happen. And we do need actually to pray. Uh, that we'll be kept from this kind of deception, this kind of uh, trickery which Satan is so good at. So, remember, he deceives, he, he uses or deploys desire, um, misdirected desire on our part, 
he leads us into depression, depression which leads us to distrust God. Again, he's very good at that. And all of this is uh, his, well, it's his permanent strategy because all of this is his constant aim. See, his prime enemy is the creator. Um, if you've ever read uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, you will know that um, whatever other questions might be raised about um, the theology of that poem, there's no question that he got this bit right. Satan is against God. And he's manipulating everything in order, if he can, to destroy the work of God, spoil it, uh, bring it to nothing. That's the whole of his purpose and uh, the focus of all his thinking and acting. All right. So take Satan seriously. But then we may move on happily, I think, to look now at the promises which Peter delivers in God's name as to what we can look for to sustain us in face of these attacks. Says Peter in verse 10 of chapter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Those are pictorial words in Greek, and just let me spend a moment celebrating the pictures. He will restore you. The Greek verb there means um, rebuild something that's ruined, complete something that's incomplete, uh, prepare something for use which isn't fully prepared for use yet. But uh, the thought is that whatever disorder remains, the Lord will put it straight and put us, in other words, into order uh, at the points where we are still out of shape and our lives are disordered. So, he, um, he will restore you. That, that's, that's the rendering. It's as good a rendering as you can get for a word which has all those associations. And the ESV, I think, is right to use it. He will restore you, he will confirm you, he will make you firm, he will establish you so that you don't wobble. Just to use that word makes me think of the days in which I think some of you, I, some of you were able to observe me when my left hip was coming to pieces and I was wobbling like nobody's business. Um, I walked first of all with a cane and then with two canes. I needed to do that in order to keep my balance and stand upright and move around at all. And if you've had close contact with people whose hip has come apart, as mine came apart, well, you will have seen this in their life. Just as uh, here at St John's people were able to see it in my life, shall I say, for free, because, <laughs> because there was no hiding it. <laughs> but uh, today, by the, shall I say, by the grace of God and as a result of good surgery, I am able to stand upright. I've got my balance back, almost complete. I'm able to stand firm. Well, that's the picture of this second verb that is used, confirm, as it's translated in the ESV. And then the third verb, which is translated strengthen, it means 
what it seems to say. Uh, and strengthening uh, is implicitly uh, a comparison word which tells you that uh, with the strength that you've got, having been strengthened, you can overcome that which is against you and which was seeking by its strength to ruin you. Think of a tug of war. One team wins because it has greater strength. Well, it's the one person tug of war against this, that and the other opposition that Satan, Satan offers. And what Peter hopes for and what Peter promises and in the Father's name, is that we shall be strengthened to win each battle and uh, triumph in each tug-of-war with Satan. And then the final verb is um, a word which means um, lay a foundation, uh, and it's translated establish you, could be translated ground you, um, I suppose established is a better word really than that. So let establish stand. He will confirm, strengthen and establish you. Give you a firm foundation. Uh, we live in a part of the world where periodically we are threatened with what they call the big one. And it's a question how many of the foundations of our buildings will stand if and when the big one comes. You know that. Right? We All of us live with it, though we don't talk very much about it. But the foundation that our God is going to give us through the experience of uh, being tried and tested, as the letter says will be an experience of being established. And so at the end of the experience, we shall be standing upright, praise the Lord. These four verbs between them are a strong, indeed an insuperable promise of victory. And I needed, I thought, to hammer away at that before I did anything else in exploring these chapters, because having spoken of Satan, there was, uh, shall I say, a sporting chance that being, as we're laboring to be realistic about Satan, we began to get frightened. And that is not the proper way to react to Satan's reality and Satan's active cunning. No, we need not be frightened. Indeed, we shouldn't be frightened. And indeed, it would be a failure of faith if we were frightened. We are on the victory side. We are on the Lord's side, and the Lord is the conqueror. So, Peter is very strong and emphatic in finishing the letter on a note of hope and confidence and certainty of victory in the ongoing battles with Satan in this world and in the world to come. Now, having all of that clear in our minds, we are, I think, equipped to look through the two chapters starting at the beginning of chapter 4 and uh, treating them section by section the way that my outline sheet did. Where, as I told you, and if you got the sheet with you, um, you would have already seen, though uh, somehow or other I imagine that most of you haven't got the sheet with you. Why should I think that? Oh, well... You can answer that question for yourself. Uh, but here we are at the beginning of chapter 4. Let me read you chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, with minimum comment. I headed these six verses, Live in the will of God. 
That's the point that Peter is enforcing here. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, he writes, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, that is, the same willingness to suffer for the glory of God, knowing that you're on the victory side. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's the happy byproduct, shall I say, of the victory that uh, the Lord leads us into as we suffer following his example. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, that is in human life, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. In other words, the suffering experience furthers sanctification in our lives. He goes on to amplify that point. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Well, maybe we have, we've had first-hand experience of that. It does happen. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this, and then a verse which is a bit tricky to explain. But uh, I think it's fundamentally clear, although the expression is clumsy. For, <coughs> writes Peter, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. It means to Christians who have died since they came to profess faith, the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, I don't think that that's brilliant translation actually, but that's what the ESV said, though judged in the flesh the way people are judged, that's what, um, uh, what Peter really means, um, all of us are judged in the flesh. I mean, we all of us before the throne of God, from the beginning of our lives, we are guilty sinners. And God judges. This isn't the day of judgment. This is simply God's verdict on us in the present moment, every present moment. So that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit, the way God does. Well, might live in the spirit according to God's grace would be my way of uh, my way of glossing that phrase, which means that I think the ESV hasn't quite expressed it all. Now, uh, as one of those who produced the ESV, I've, uh, I'm pointing at myself. You see, when I <coughs> when I. When I say that, well, honesty will out. We did the, ES, the ESV 15 years ago, and we are heading for um, another meeting of the people who worked, in the, worked on the, tr the translation in the first instance. The meeting will come in the near future, and um, perhaps we shall adjust this phrase. I don't know. <laughs> But anyway, uh, that they might live in the spirit according to the grace of God is the thought that I'm pretty sure is there in the Greek. Um, they are, in other words, justified sinners. And you mustn't suppose that the fact that having become Christians, now they've died. That's, you mustn't suppose that's any form of divine judgment or any form of uh, satanic victory. No, no. They live in the Spirit, according to the grace of God. That's why the gospel was preached to them, so that they might enter into that life, and that's where they are now. So, as I say, it still is a bit clear.
clumsy an expression, but that I'm pretty sure is what Peter means. And now he goes on to another paragraph, which I headed, Love and Serve for the Glory of God. And it reads like this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's a word of wisdom for all Christians at all times. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Not, cover, not covers in the sense of making them vanish, but covers in the sense of sweeping them aside as a guide to how you're going to react to this, uh, this person. Yes, maybe this person or these persons have been involved in a multitude of sins, but love doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, how can I say it, doesn't determine itself in light of that fact. Love determines itself in terms of the need that people have. Keep, so keep loving one another earnestly since love, which covers a multitude of sins, does prompt you to meet people's needs. Best thing you can do. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, that's a gift for ministry as you see, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as, speak as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is Peter doing what Paul, in his epistles, periodically does. He bursts out into doxology. What a happy and healthful thing. He bursts out into praise. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And let everyone know that. Yes. Now he goes on to another paragraph. After love and serve for the glory of God comes a paragraph which uh, can be summarised in the title Cope with the Trials from God. Yes, uh, it isn't just that Satan imposes tests, trials, circumstances that may mislead and draw people into mistakes of belief and behaviour. Um, cope with the trials that come from God. God overrules all of that and overrules it for the purpose of strengthening us, strengthening us through testing, as Peter said in chapter 1, and I read that if you remember uh, when this talk started. And he says here, um, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That's vocational reality for all of us. You share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Discipleship involves that. So embrace it with both hands, so to speak, and be happy in it because of the glory that you know lies beyond it. But let none of you suffer, he goes on, as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler, 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God under that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Clearly what Peter is talking about when he speaks of judgment there is circumstances that sort us out. Circumstances which show uh, what God thinks of some of the things that we've been doing, of other people have been doing. It's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. God may sort us out like this in his church at any time. He's sovereign. And all that Peter says about it is, well, we may expect it to happen. And if it begins with us, just imagine what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's the right path. That's what we're to do through thick and thin. And thus we cope with the trials that God permits uh, in our lives. Then come four verses in which he's addressing elders in the congregations. And he, in, he does so, he says, as a fellow elder. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not as if it was an unpleasant burden. Pastoral care is not like that, real pastoral care anyway but doing it willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is for pastors. Be good pastors, loving pastors, faithful pastors, committed pastors. And when the chief shepherd appears, he continues you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And then, likewise, oh wait, but it's another paragraph now. Paragraph 5 through, uh, verses 5 through 7. Uh, I gave it a distinct heading on my outline sheet and I'm getting it a distinct heading now. Those three verses, he, sh, 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 um, I head, practice humility before God, and that's a word for everybody. So, let me read it for, from verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't think I need comment on that. The meaning is perfectly obvious. And the question is whether we have room in our hearts to take this admonition to heart. Meantime, on we go. Verses 8 through 11 of chapter 5. These cover what we said about Satan earlier on in the talk. The heading that I've given to these verses as a paragraph is Stand Steady Against the Enemy of God. Yes, I'll read them again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. That is constantly the way things are. Casting is a present participle. This is something we should be doing every day of our lives. Casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. 
And then, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's a point of devotion there, I think, um, where none of us on our own, we're none of us as much on our own as we sometimes feel we are. We all are part of a fellowship and there's enormous strength available to us if we make full use, shall I say, of the support of those in the fellowship with us. Just as we are penalising ourselves if we keep our troubles to ourselves and are not humble enough to ask for help in terms of human support and prayer. But anyway, um, he hopes that uh, we take the point there and continues... And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then, once again, doxology, to him be the dominion for ever and ever. And so the, what shall I say, the message part of the letter comes to an end, and there are one or two personal points made to round it all off. By Silvanus, faithful brothers, I regard him, I've written briefly to you. I've written briefly to you as a reference to the letter, and Silvanus is the chap whom Peter used as a secretary or amanuensis. I talked about this, I think, in one of the earlier talks, the regular way of writing letters in the ancient world was to dictate them to a person who did the secretary's job of uh, putting it all down on paper and on occasion knocking it into shape when that was needed for clarity and good style and clear order and so forth. And then you who did the dictating would sign the letter just like um, a well Shall I, I'm not sure that I, that I dare say, like a modern boss. I can, I, I can only say, like the bosses were in the days when I was so high, a young man, um, 70 years ago, 80 years ago. But, uh, yes, that's how it was done. And Sylvanus is the, the person whose hand you see as having written all the words on the papyrus and uh, I, uh, Peter doesn't say I signed it Paul does say with some of, some of his letters uh, here is my signature um, he says that because uh, in his case spurious letters from uh, purporting to be from Paul were going the rounds um, it's a sort of a inverted compliment when people imitate you to your disadvantage, uh, to their advantage. It does sometimes happen. Um, Peter isn't that distinguished a writer, but uh, he wrote his letter the way that letters were written in those days, and Sylvanus is the man who uh, used the stylus to uh, inscribe the papyrus. By Sylvanus, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then there's best wishes from the church. She who's at Babylon, that's, um, that, that, that's the church at Rome, pretty certainly, where Peter is at the time of writing the letter. He calls it Babylon because, uh, as in the book of Revelation, Rome pictures uh, all the worldliness that was embodied in Babylon in the old days. And that's what the image is intended to project. 
She was at Babylon, was likewise chosen, just as you are, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Uh, this is Mark who wrote the Gospel. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, that is Peter addressing Christians as they suffer in the storms. No doubt, I think, as to which is the victory side. Very heartening, I think, to go through it and see how confident and encouraging Peter is able to be. And uh, once again, I am beginning to overrun, so I must stop. But I hope you'll agree with me, it's a great letter. And it's a very happy thing that we've been able to work through it together.